This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hi everyone, this is Flo from the Great War Channel podcast, uh, here on a beautiful Monday morning in Berlin. And with me today, uh, I have a special guest who is sitting in Denmark, actually, and he's going to introduce himself now. Hi, my name is uh, Nikolai Ebalst. Uh, I'm an historian from Denmark, um, and uh, my main field is the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the First World War. Um, I've studied uh, history at the University of Copenhagen, uh, and I currently work at the Copenhagen City Archives. And... Um, then I'm also uh, on Twitter uh, as at PikeGrave1418, where I cover the First World War from the Austro-Hungarian perspective. Welcome to the show, Nikolai. Um, I will put a link to the Twitter account in the show notes, of course, because uh, that was basically the, the work you're doing there is great, and that was basically how I actually got in touch with you. So thank you. Great work. Thank you. There, and I think, um, well, if. You know, our listeners probably just heard Austro-Hungary, then, you know, it must be just a Twitter account where you talk about the dysfunctionality of the Austro-Hungarian army. But it's not that quite that like. No, not not quite. Uh, it's a little more complicated than that. <laughs> um, as it's usually with history. As it usually is. Um, we, we tend to buy into um, some preconceived notions about how things are, how, how, how we... We are told it is, uh, and how we've been told it it was uh, for almost a hundred years. Uh, and um, I think the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the First World War is uh, is a brilliant example of of how um, of how how our perception of of the reality can be influenced and 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 pushed to other people's uh, <laughs> views in a in in a in a way that. Um, that we don't really see with with maybe uh, many of the other nations. So, do you think the the basically the outcome, uh, the dissolution of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, has something to do with uh, how the army is generally perceived? Uh, I think it, it is. Uh, you you don't really have uh, a, a clear um, leveled and uh, and. Uh, <laughs> um, independent voice uh, of the Austro-Hungarians un until much later. Um, much of what you hear is from German sources at first, and you hear it from, uh, from, uh, from Western European sources, and you hear it from the general staff mainly, uh, who have their own agenda they're trying to push. Uh, so, so that's what influences us a lot, and sadly it, it has taken a long time for, for some of those uh, notions to to soften up a bit let's say it like that so um let's start with a very broad question then um how how would you um rate the austro-hungarian army's performance in the in world war one I? I know it's like a huge question but maybe we can dive deeper into the details from there yes i think uh, the austro-hungarian uh, army is one of the 
lesser good armies of the war. They are not the worst, uh, and they, but they are certainly not the best. Um, a lot of their trouble are the same trouble that a lot of other armies are fighting with uh, in the beginning. They have the same ideas about uh, all-out attack, like we see with the French. But I think that the, that bad leadership was the main reason for their troubles in the war, um, and they're perhaps the only army who loses the war, in a sense, in the first few months, as some historians have pointed out uh, in recent years. Ah, so um, basically after Galicia and everything, there was no realistic, after the Battle of Galicia, there was no realistic way that they could have uh, swinged around again? Um, no, not really uh, the way I see it, because if you look at the numbers, the professional army of Austria-Hungary at the beginning of the war is uh, between 400 and 500,000 people. And those are roughly the casualty figures in those first Uh, months of the war. So what they do is they lose almost their entire professional army uh, within the first few months. And it's basically just playing catch-up for the rest of the war. Um, they they don't have enough reserves. They don't have enough weapons. They have outdated weapons for a good part of the war. So for them to, to turn it around in an active war with soldiers on three fr fronts at least... Yeah, so of course, some more fronts later on and uh, small engagements, but three major fronts is, yeah, it's uh, hard to see how they would ever have turned that around. Okay, and um, let's lo have a look at the, the Battle of Galicia, for example, mm. and the, the opening battles and everything. What, what were some, okay, I mean, we know on our show, we know Konrad von Hötzendorf. Yes. He has basically a, an online fan, fan base now, thanks to us. <laughs> yes, I've noticed, I've noticed that... Uh, His name pops up more and more after you guys <laughs> took an interest in him. Let's maybe um, go a bit more into detail than just the strategic level. Maybe to have a look at more of the, the tactics and the individual army groups or even uh, divisions and everything. How was the performance of the, of the soldiers uh, in the Battle of Galicia there? Do you have a few notable examples? I would say that their, their, uh, their, their conduct in battle was on par with every other military. Um, they were dashing forward like uh, like we see with the French. Um, they, they were uh, brave, but as you guys are well aware and, and that every army was made well aware of, that didn't necessarily work the way it had done in, in years before. Um, you see uh famous regiments like the uh, imperial and royal infantry regiment number four and then of course they sometimes have titles but um those were gotten rid of later but that was a famous regiment um at the time and and uh, in the even before the opening battles they would lose their commanding officer um because of an attack where they basically walked forward towards the russians And he was hit in the throat, if I, I believe correctly, and it cut his uh, uh, his main artery in the in in the neck. Uh, and and it's the same story all over. They they lose all of their officers, all their trained officers. They use most of their trained personnel, and what they're left with it is the reserves, uh, the the Landsturm, as it was called. It was um, while while the army performed well they just lost too many men basically numbers that they could never replenish and uh, how did the makeup of the i mean the austro-hungarian army was a 
as was the Austro-Hungarian Empire, a multi-ethnic force, basically. Mm. I mean, you had, you had um, as, I, as I remember, like multiple language versions of the national anthem even, or the, the ode to, oath to the, to, to, of allegiance was even conducted in multiple languages and everything. How, how, did, how did that affect the, the army in the early stages of the war? In the early stages of the war, it, it probably affected it less uh, than in the later stages of the war, because pre-war, the the uh, the army as a multinational, multi-ethnical, and uh, multilingual uh, institution, their officers were required to to learn the languages of the men who served in the regiment. When you start to see problems, in, when all those officers have died and you have to replace those officers, you get officers who have no time to learn a new language, who have um, no experience of leading these troops. And you see very weird situations where you have uh, regiments commanded in English because it's the only like common language they have. Wow. Um, a lot of the soldiers who came in didn't know German, uh, which was the official language of the army. Um, the officers spoke perhaps mainly uh, German and Hungarian, and uh, there was just no time to, to, to learn each other's languages. So you had to make do, and you have to make do with translators, and in a, in a, in a battle situation, that's just not a, a recommendable uh, trait to have in your army. And that situation got even worse down the line. Yes, uh, as the war goes on, it, it gets worse and worse and worse, and you also get uh, people in with uh, racist traits uh, who have who are racist towards the Slavs. Uh, you you get the elements in who are perhaps less enthusiastic about the empire as a whole, um, nationalistic tendencies. It, it, it just goes down from there. So I would say that in the beginning of the war, to go back to your question, it is less of a problem because you have a trained army. The army is seen as one of the, uh, of the pillars of the empire. If you can say it like that, it's uh, one of the few things, at least a common army is one of the few things that uh, that the empire actually has in common. Otherwise, it's, as I'm sure you know, it, uh, two states, Austria and Hungary. Um, and it gets even more complicated because those two states also have their own armies. It's, uh, it's a complicated affair. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that in the beginning, not so much later on, it becomes one of the main issues. But of course, the, um, I mean, the army, even though it was impossible to adapt at, a, at the pace required to come out of the war victorious again, yes. they still did adapt. I mean, in our show, we talked about uh, the Jagdkommandos, for example. Mm. We talked about um, how they adapted to mountain warfare uh, at the Isonzo front and the Dolomite front where we visited and everything. Mm. So let's talk a bit about the notable examples where they uh, managed to well, adapt to modern war, so to speak. They did manage to adapt. Um, as you can see, if you, if you take like uh, notable examples, like um, uh, 1914, it's very heavily infantry-based. It's uh, infantry attacks full on. Um, later on, in 1915, 1916, uh, it's a much more uh, uh, focus on um, on heavy fortifications, deep trenches, uh, extensive trench fortifications, especially on the uh, on the eastern front and the uh, and the Italian front. Of course, um, they double 
the amount of, of machine guns. They, they get specialized weapons or uh, the likes of uh, small infantry guns to take out single positions from the frontline trenches, um, trench mortars, all those things. Of course, they, as you said, they have the, uh, the Yak Commando, but they're also heavily influenced by the, uh, the German uh, assault training and tactics. Uh, so they do adapt, um, but you can say that in in many ways they, they they take on a lot of wrong lessons as well. Um, the Brazilov offensive is maybe one of the best examples of um, of of taking on the the wrong lessons of war, where they have these strong fortifications, but they don't have any reserves. Um, they 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 simply do not have any ability to 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 mend holes once the Russians break through the the frontline trenches and also they seriously lack the uh, the command structure good good officers when 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 the russians break through it's basically just every man for themselves there's no coordinated retreats everything just breaks down and it wouldn't have maybe on the german side because they had better lessons and that's why the germans come in and and almost take over command of the austro-hungarian army at that point Yeah, I mean the the Germans are of course uh, b big fans of the um, sh shackled to a corpse narrative in that sense. That yes. you know that's how that's how they see their Austro-Hungarian ally. Mm. But on the other hand, I mean if you look at the um, at the length of the Eastern Front mm. in 1915-1916 and the amount of offensive they had, and you know as a, again just the sheer length, what, was it even possible along? the uh, Austro-Hungarian sector to effectively man this, these kind of defensive defensives with even ha having reserves and maybe fallback options and multiple layered uh, defense and depth systems? No, uh, it, it probably wasn't. They, they didn't have the, um, the manpower to have an, uh, a defense in depth, but um, what, what they really suffered was having a very strong front line, having most of the, f the the troops in the front line, having all all your forces take the the full brunt of the uh, of the enemy attack and nobody behind it. Um, where, as you see in 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 maybe uh, some parts of the Western Front and and the German parts of the Eastern Front, uh, you 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 didn't stack up all your troops in the front line in the first trench because you know that's where everything comes comes falling down uh the moment uh, an enemy offensive starts uh you you need to have uh the reserves a little further back uh you need to have them able to to react to where things go wrong on the front um a lot of it st stems from small successes on the eastern front especially around the uh, the winter of 1915 1916 where 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 these kind of um tactics pay off for the austro the uh collectively known as the New Year's battles, they, where they stop uh, Russian attacks. Um, they sort of take on that, okay, this works, let's keep doing this. And then, of course, when, when the Russians have a more capable commander, uh, as in Brasilov, then they realize very quickly that that was not the right thing to do. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's also the the lesson that the, that the Germans and then also basically the Entente... Mm. Uh, learned that you can't just yeah put keep, put every everyone in the front and then have wait have them wait for the creeping barrage basically yeah exactly 
Um, but uh, okay, let's um, let's look a bit more at the at the Alpine front mm. because that's one of my one of the most interesting fronts of the whole war. I think. Yeah, I, I think it it is, and you can see you can see it in the literature as well. Uh, while it's extremely hard to find work on on the Eastern Front, there there maybe maybe you don't notice it so much uh, in in English literature, but in 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 German literature you see a, a lot. More written about the the Italian front uh, or the Alpine front, especially the Alpine front, even uh, perhaps more than the Isonzo front. Uh, the uh, war above the clouds or the white war, those romantic terms, uh, have really stuck with people. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's an incredible feat to to look at it. I mean, first of all, that you know it was kind of an, also an industrialized mm. war because otherwise it wouldn't even have been possible to fight on these peaks. Mm. But also the well, it illustrates both what man is capable of and that he can use these capabilities in a very senseless way. Yes, uh, indeed. Uh, the um, the Italian front was uh, a very different war from what you see on, say, the eastern and the western front. It's uh, it's very unique, and I think what what's more amazing about it uh, is the fact that they did it in 1915. 1916, 1917, uh, the lack of proper winter clothing, the difficulties of transporting supplies up and down a mountain, all those things just add up to to a tremendous feat for these soldiers who fought there. And, and that's why this front do hold on to you. And if, if you've been to the places and seen the places where they fought, you really do realize how incredibly hard it must have been uh, to fight in these conditions. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was uh, struck us very hard when we were yeah. uh, on the on on the Lagazui, which is uh, something I recommend to everyone who is in the area to to visit this part of uh, of Italy. Um, but I mean, if we if we go back to your adaptation or lack of adaptation um, thesis on the Eastern Front, then the Alpine Front basically is kind of a success story in terms of adapting because. The I don't I mean when Italy entered the war, the kind of losses you were talking about in the beginning already happened, and from what I remember, they the Austro-Hungarians didn't have that many troops to even properly defend um, well the Alps, the border with Italy, but they did. They did. Uh, of course, part of uh, the um, the credit goes to the Italians as well. Um, the, uh, the Italians had their own. Conrad, in a in a way, in the form of uh, of uh, of Cadorna, and and it was not known for 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 learning the lessons, and you see this again and again with eleven uh, attacks with very little variation. The fact that they wait so long before they they make an, a proper effort allows the uh, Austro-Hungarians to build defenses on this front. Which really saves them, I think. Uh, I, I doubt they would have been able to hold a million men with the forces they have in May uh, 1915. Uh, but they wait, and uh, it gives the Austro-Hungarians a chance to build heavy defenses. And what you see is that it's constantly the uh, Austro-Hungarians looking down at the Italians, and the Italians having to attack uphill in some of the most uh, treacherous terrain <laughs> uh, in perhaps uh, Europe. Uphill is a very 
light term for what you see in the in the Dolomites? In the Dolomites, uh, but per, perhaps uphill is more uh, applicable to the Isonzo front, um, the uh, the lower Isonzo. You you see uh, slopes uh, where you c you can attack uphill, but you are in in, in crossfire all the time. Um, you you see flanking fire from every direction. Uh, and they really make good use of the terrain. Um, they have good officers uh, who know the terrain, um, and they have uh, perhaps more more inspired um, soldiers than 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 you see uh, on on the eastern front, who 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 does not like to fight uh, Slavs as much as they do love to fight Italians, <laughs> in a way. So, the, so there was a notable morale d uh, difference between the fronts. Uh, I think there definitely was. Uh, uh, you do see this the way it, in a way. You you also have it, it on the Italian front. It's a defensive war. On the Eastern front, it is of course defensive as well uh, in periods, but it is also an offensive war. Um, and if if your army is not motivated, is not trained, I think uh, that plays a huge part that you are fighting. A defensive war instead of an offensive war, especially in World War One terms, where you see the casualty figures in an offensive war uh, contra that of a defensive war. Yeah, um, one one um, story I read about, maybe you know more about this, is um, the story of the of the Bosniak, mm. the the, Bo the Bosnian regiment. They also, I think, they fought on mul multiple fronts basically throughout the war. Yeah, and as far as I read, they were the most decorated Austro-Hungarian regiment. Yes. The uh, the second uh, there were there were four at the beginning of the of the war four uh, infantry regiments uh, the uh, Bosnian and Herzegovinian regiments and um, the second of them were the the most uh, decorated the Schweizer Bosniaken and they did fight uh, on several fronts but they 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 uh, they already distinguished themselves in uh, Galicia in the opening battles but uh, I think a lot of their Their uh, their fame comes from from the Italian front uh, because the enemy really feared these men, uh, and they were brave and they, and and they were they they were they were generally good led uh, and and they had uh, good morale through uh, through the war, probably also as a result of of being uh, recognized uh, as a as an elite. Okay, so that's like the. Well, the most decorated regiment of the war, uh, of the Austro-Hungarian army. Do you know a few other notable regiments that um, well did well in the circumstances? I think uh, a lot of the units fighting on the uh, on the uh, Isonzo front, especially, um, did remarkably well. Uh, several hundred uh, the Hungarian army regiments um, fought remarkably well uh, around uh, Mont Saint Michel and. Um, A, a, a lot of these units were, were sort of comp, com, composite units uh, of um, detached battalions from other regiments. So to say uh, one regiment fought very well there is uh, is difficult because it was often a battalion from one regiment put together with other um, battalions. Was this because they always just needed to plug the holes that the it Italians uh, were creating with their offensives? Uh, in, in a way was uh but but also because the um the austro-hungarian army before the war had a um a tendency of taking one battalion 
and having it transferred to the uh, the, the Balkans, um, so that you would have uh, in the common army, in the in the, the uh, imperial and royal army, uh, you would have infantry regiments with four battalions, um, and you would they would often send one of these battalions to the mountainous regions, and they would be especially trained in in in, in mountain warfare. So, so some of these were were uh, battalions who had not been caught up in the battles in the east, where the rest of the regiments were fighting, um, and they uh, they sort of survived that way uh, and became good units uh, fighting together with other well-trained units trained in mountain warfare. A notable example is um, one of the Czech battalions from the uh, 26th Regiment. Uh, and the 26th was one of the regiments who was, uh, which was disbanded in uh, in 1915 for for allegedly defecting to the Russians in the uh, in the Carpathian battles in in I believe they they, they supposedly defected in April 1915 in the third battle, but their detached battalion. Although this wasn't a detached battalion, it was actually a reserve battalion which had been sent to the uh, Italian front. Um, it 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 served well, uh, and and remained despite the fact that that the rest of the regiment had been dis- dishonored, and earned recognition enough to have the regiment reinstated. No, oh. yeah, and it was even if if you go a step further, you can say that it was uh, uh, Borevich who, to begin with, have had uh, proposed it uh, or at least um, advocated for the disbanding. But he was also the one who recognized the regiment and uh, pushed for its reinstatement in uh, after his action in uh, Italy, where of course he was he was in charge. Okay, that basically I mean I have a bit of a knot in my head now. So if you want to research the Austro-Hungarian army, you will stumble across a situation where the same regiment fought on two different fronts at the same time. Yes. Yes, you will. Uh, way too often, I would say. It's uh, it can be very annoying. Do, do you know what? Okay, I mean, I can understand that they wanted they wanted to tr- uh, train some of the troops in mountain warfare and everything. But from an organizational standpoint, that strikes me as odd because I would think that you want to keep the troops together for as much time as possible to form them into a cohesive. Uh, fighting force, which is, for example, what the Canadians did on the Western Front. Yes, uh, it, it will strike as as, um, as as strange, but I I think it, it a lot of it came as a tradition from the occupation of uh, of Bosnia. You 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 sort of took away troops who who would who would serve there from the remaining regiments. The um, Austro-Hungarians always struggle with not having enough troops. Uh, and this was uh, perhaps a way without having to 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 build up new regiments that they could um, take battalions from this and and they did serve as detached almost uh, independent battalions together with other units of course in 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 a more um, a more standard more conventional uh, hierarchy so in brigades in in uh, divisions in corps but the uh, the names of the battalions would correspond to another regiment okay interesting very interesting okay so um before we wrap this up of course we need to talk a bit more about Konrad von Hudsendorf. <laughs> yeah there are a few people um who don't like our pro- portrayal of him too much on the show and one thing that i particularly read often is that um his plans were brilliant but the execution was poor 
So he was actually quite a good strategist in theory. Was he? I don't think so. A lot of his uh, his his work pre-war was on tactics, not strategy. Uh, what you ended up with was uh, the same man in charge of tactics and strategy. And um, I can see why some people might might uh, have a positive view of him in relation to how how he was um, portrayed for for a long time uh, after the war uh, as a sort of Austrian national hero. But I think that. That today uh, most would agree that he was not very competent. A lot of a lot of um, people who 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 hail him still would refer to some Russian sources saying that he was a good uh, general. But again, you have to ask how much did they know? Of course, they were on the receiving end, but um, how much did they know about the way that he worked <laughs> the the Austro-Hungarian army? I think the most uh, illustrative, or, or what you could call it, uh, example of 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 his uh, his style was the uh, the Carpathian offensives, which were a complete disaster uh, in every way, um, with no regards to to uh, the uh, terrain, the weather, uh, troop strength, troop morale, anything like that. Just numbers on a on a map. Um, and you saw uh, one regiment losing 1,800 men in a night from from cold, but of course you, they would still appear as a, as a regiment on this map. But at, uh, with those casualty rates, he would never have had a clear picture, and he wasn't a fan of visiting the front. There's not much good to say about him, I think. Okay, so he was definitely not a good strategist. I don't think so. Um, I heard a lecture with uh, one of the uh, leading historians on the Austro-Hungarians, uh, John Schindler, who said that one of his qualities what, was that he was not a Nazi. Um, and that's perhaps what resulted in him being an acceptable hero figure after uh, the Second World War. So if your one redeeming quality is not being a Nazi, um, yeah, it's, it, it's not looking good. Okay, well... I'm I'm glad we talked a bit more about him as well. Um, well, uh, thanks for your time, Nikolai. You're welcome. Again, if you guys out there want to learn more about the Austro-Hungarian army in 240 characters or less, I highly recommend following um, his Twitter project, PikeGray1418 it is. Um, it's, well, we also retweet it from time to time, but you should really follow it to get the full experience. A lot of interesting pictures and everything. We, of course, should thank the Austrian Austrian archive here again to put out. They put out a lot of great uh, quality pictures from the from their official records uh, all the time. And uh, do you want to say anything uh, at the end about the Austro-Hungarian army that you always wanted to say? Yes, uh, I would love to say one last thing, and that is that people should uh, really consider reading on uh, past the uh, 1914 mark um, when it comes to the Austro-Hungarians because that's really where where most of the um, the one one uh, volume ver works on the war uh, stops discussing them in detail um, and uh, I think that's when they start getting more interesting. Okay, well I will also see if I can put a few more uh, sources in the description um, thanks for your time Nikolai and good luck with your Twitter project. Thank you